0: Hi, I'm Marika, and welcome to Money Chillouts. On this podcast, I want to dive into the world of the often spoken topic of money. Effective personal finance management can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. After a 10-year career on trading flows in London, I want to help demystify the intimidating world of finance and have an open, honest, and frank conversation. By opening the discussion, I wish you identify yourself, learn, be inspired, and get empowered. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindsets, investment habits, and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. And when you're ready to go further in mastering your finances, come and work with me on a one-to-one coaching. You'll grow your awareness, move on with your projects, and have an accountability buddy to track your progress. Today, I'm honored to welcome Rob, a high-profile individual in the finance industry who uses his power to try to make the world a better place. He is Director of Investments at St. James's Place, Manages $150 billion of sterling of client wealth over more than 850,000 people, and he is taking an industry-leading position when it comes to responsible investing. He also holds a few board positions and is a passionate advocate of financial inclusion through financial education, which is a subject that I cherish. So, hi Rob, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: I'm well, thanks Marika. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no, I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. So really, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, uh, Sunday night. (laughs) And yeah, super keen to speak to you about financial activism, because I'm a true believer that once you actually understand the power of your money, even at an individual level, a lot of things do change. So you can align the way you spend and invest with your values. You can support the causes you care about. And it ultimately leads to financial well-being, which is really what I'm trying to explore on this podcast. So before we start, actually, I'm super impressed with people who run so many different activities at the same time. So you have a big job, you board position, you co-founded the fourth largest investment consulting company in the UK. You're so co-founded a financial education charity. You've written a book to teach young children and their families about the importance of managing their money. And yourself two girls. I mean, how do you find the time?
1: It's a great question. And I ask myself the same question sometimes. We all have the same 168 hours a week. So it's it's really how we apportion them. And, and when you say it like that, what you don't get is the overlap. And so I'm very purpose-driven. So my whole kind of purpose is financial well-being in a world worth living in and so when you look at my job when you look at those board positions when you look at the charity when you look at financial education they all overlap they're not different things they're all connected so they all support each other and so for me or certainly the non-family stuff the kind of work board financial education charity stuff they're all like a venn diagram with overlapping petals and the more they overlap, the more they help each other in the jobs. Otherwise, it would be impossible to do. If I had board positions on companies that were nothing to do with financial well-being or a world worth living in or a charity, nothing to do with that, it would be a lot harder.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. That's super interesting. So let's talk about relationship with money. And I've actually just finished Psychology of Money by Morgan Hooser. I don't know if you've read it. I
1: have. Brilliant book.
0: Brilliant book indeed. Yeah. And you actually say that your childhood shapes the way you perceive your money. So can you tell us a bit about your environment back then and has it had an impact on you?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Argentina. My parents moved there when I was about seven years old. And in the early 1980s, inflation was running very high. And by high, I mean 30% a month. So high that the prices were changing every day, intraday. And so I used to remember at the end of each month when my mom and dad would get paid in the local currency and the currency changed multiple times that we lived there, that we'd go out after school and we'd get haircuts, you know, new shoes, clothes, and we'd go to the supermarket and we'd run around the supermarket trying to pick out the things before someone literally changed the price during the day. So one is that's a real visceral experience of inflation and that your money is going to be worth less tomorrow and the day after but kind of in real time. The second thing was at night, my dad would then drive up to this house that looked like a house out of a Narcos movie, you know, big metal bars, Dobermans. And he'd go in with one of his friends to work and they'd take their local currency and they'd exchange it for dollars on what's called the black market. So they they were basically doing it illegally. And then we'd get home and they'd take their dollars and we'd hide it in the old 35 millimeter film canisters. And then we'd hide those film canisters around the house. And that was because it it was actually safer to kind of take your money and put it in dollars and hide it around the house than put it in the bank. Because the other risk was that basically banks or the government would take your money. So those two ideas that money could be taken away from you, either through inflation or how you kept it, were really, I suppose, early lessons for me. And I suppose there's one other, which is, Living in Argentina, we were this kind of non-existent middle class. My parents taught at a school, which was either for our expatriates living in Argentina or wealthy Argentinians. And the rest of Argentina was very poor. And, you know, we wouldn't have any pocket money. So I used to remember at the kind of school break and at lunchtime, I'd watch the older kids drinking Coca-Cola and Fanta. And they'd often just leave their bottles lying around in the playground. So I used to go and collect the bottles and then take them back to the shop and get some money for it. So I'd I'd come home at the end of the day with some money. And I suppose the lesson there is that there are always opportunities to make money, to earn money. And it's one of the things that I really try and teach people. One is, what are the opportunities to earn money and how can you go and do it? And two, the importance of keeping hold of your money. And we'll come back to that theme more later.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And especially with the um, inflation environment, even though it's not 30%, but clearly it's uh, the one subject at the moment. So, yeah, I'm keen to get your views. (laughs) So fast forward a few years, what do you think led you to success? What skills or personality maybe have you developed that really made the difference?
1: It's a truism, but hard work. I mean, there's no substitute for, for hard work. But I do think you need to be hard work with direction. I have a kind of framework that's worked for me and I kind of share with people who are starting out their careers. And And I, and I really think there are three forms of capital, financial capital, social capital, and intellectual capital. And let, and let me start with intellectual capital, because obviously, you know, we go to school, maybe some of us go on to tertiary education, university, and that's all in the pursuit of intellectual capital. And then with that intellectual capital, you can kind of earn money of it. You can turn that intellectual capital into money through work. What I've seen is that quite often people stop building and growing that intellectual capital. And I think it's so important to keep learning. And it's, you know, it's never been easier to learn, especially now with podcasts. And I mean, the available online resources to teach yourself about anything is there. You just have to go and find it and do it. And I suppose my first thing is, you know, never stop learning. The second thing is social capital. And I don't mean in the sense of like, Who do you know? And nepotism, you know, I know so-and-so who can get me a job here. But one of the things that I think is important is when you need to find something out, quite often, let's say a medical example, we kind of Google and we try and become experts in that subject using Google. Actually, the better question is who is an expert in that subject? So if I want to know about biodiversity, let me go and find out who are the leading thinkers in biodiversity and either speak to them or look them up on a podcast or read their material. Rather than just sort of Google biodiversity and just and just read whatever comes up. So, and then building that social network over your career is key. And again, the reason why I say they're all like capital is because they all compound if you invest in them. So your intellectual capital compounds, your social capital compounds as you get older and as you nurture those relationships. But you do need to nurture those relationships. And then three, financial capital. And again, that's, I suppose, why we're on this podcast, but it's this idea of sort of financial freedom that you're not a slave to your work or your job, or as quickly as possible, you build up enough financial capital to give you choice to do the things that you want to do, which is very much something that Morgan Housel talks about in his book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it as well, the three, how they're connected together, because you're going to have a great job with that. Having great connections. I mean, often you need the two to really make a difference. So makes sense. So let's go into financial activism now. So can you describe and, and what exactly what exactly it is?
1: Well, it actually links to you know when you said well, how do I find time? Is I suppose for me it's the persistent campaigning and everything that I do. To create change to help people make better money decisions so my day job is working at the largest wealth manager in the uk and one of the largest wealth managers in europe and so our core business is giving people financial advice helping people make good decisions about money the company i founded Reddington, aims to help make 100 million people financially secure and that business advises pension funds and insurance companies again about making good long-term decisions with money and then the charity red starts is looking to change the game and get financial education on the primary school syllabus in the UK. And at the moment, it's running a program with fifteen and a half thousand school kids over six seven years to create enough evidence so that the government can put it on the school curriculum, and that will help four point seven million children. So for me, that is financial activism. It's the kind of persistent campaigning to bring about change, whether that's financial education for young people, whether that's helping adults make better decisions with their money or whether that's using money as a force for good and how do I use my role as a as a significant investor to engage not just with the businesses we invest in, but also in the industry to try and create that change.
0: Mm-hmm. So interesting. And especially like the school, I've never understood why learning about how you deal with your money, like how to budget, how to invest, I've never been taught at school. Whereas I think, yeah, if you have that knowledge, So many people, so many opportunities would be out there.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's such an important life skill, but that's where change is is hard because people just have massive status quo bars. So they just stick to what they know.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we deep dive a bit into your investment world, so when you normally invest, you can either select criteria and then screen companies that would suit with your strategy. So environment wise, do you have sectors that you automatically exclude because they pollute too much, for example?
1: So great question. And I, I want to step back a bit because what you're talking to is about is the spectrum of capital. And at one end, you've got divestment. So this was very popular of 20 years ago. The problem with divestment is that it makes you feel good about your portfolio, but it doesn't actually create any change. Or in my world, we talk about this concept called additionality. What impact did it make? So just because I don't own an oil and gas company, does that solve the problem I'm trying to solve? At the other end of the spectrum is impact investing, where I might be investing in businesses, not just purely for a financial purpose, but also to create, bring about change. I want more renewable energy. I want more electric vehicles. I want more biodiversity. And then in between is environmental, social and governance factors and you've got screening you've got integration and you've got engagement again the problem with screening is it doesn't really create any additionality and quite often you're using metrics that are backward looking whereas actually if you think about change you want to be looking forward and actually the truth is is that you want to engage with those bad actors then they won't all change but if you can change them that makes a a huge a huge difference so in terms of the kind of my job, which is responsible for 150 billion pounds, we engage. We have actually achieved our 2025 net zero commitments three years early. We've launched the largest low carbon intensity fund on the planet. But crucially, we've done that without excluding from a single sector. So we do own oil and gas and we own BP and Shell, but we don't own Exxon or Chevron or Gasprom. We do own metals and mining companies, but we don't own all of them. We do own airlines, but we don't own all of them. So, what we're looking to do is to invest in the industry leaders. And that's just those that see the ESG opportunities and risk. And how can we get behind those businesses so that they can transition? And that's A, because that will lead to, we believe, will lead to superior financial performance in the medium to long term. And two, obviously, it has a massive impact in terms of trying to create the change drive the change that that you're trying to seek.
0: I like it. And can you explain what is a net zero portfolio? What does it mean and how do you achieve it?
1: Yeah, so a net zero portfolio means that the assets that your money is invested in, and let's keep it simple, let's assume it's in equities, have a net zero impact on CO2 and greenhouse gases. Now, at the moment, there are increasing regulations in the UK and around the world to get companies to disclose effectively their carbon footprint. It's called TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Think of it a bit like your annual report on accounts that reports your revenues, your costs, and your profit. But it does the same for your kind of carbon dioxide. And you've got three levels, scope one, scope two, and scope three. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to have all of your companies at net zero. So take someone like Microsoft, who not only plans to be net zero in terms of their ongoing business, but wants to offset all their CO2 since inception. Well, first, what you need to do is make your business as operationally as efficient as possible. So how can you make your energy renewable? How can you make your businesses as environmentally friendly as possible? But you'll always be left with a residual, right? You've still got employees who get on planes and drive to work. You still interact with other companies that have a carbon footprint. So, you then need to kind of measure what's the impact of your supply chain, add it all up. And then you can invest in either carbon credits, which is basically paying like a tax for the production of those CO2, or you can invest in natural capital projects that will offset that CO2. So, for example, Reddington, the business I founded, is net zero. It was founded 15 years ago. And so we work with a company called B Zero Carbon, who helped us analyze our carbon footprints since 2006 and calculate our total cumulative co2 and then we went and invested in kind of five natural capital projects around the world everything from kind of mangrove swamps to forests which have proven carbon sequestration and again based on this idea of additionality you're not buying sort of swamplands or mangroves that already existed, you're trying to use that capital to create new mangroves that wouldn't have existed. And therefore you're sequestering more capital, more carbon dioxide than you would have had that not have happened. So to be at net zero requires every single business to be net zero, which is why it's such a big tall ask. And that's why, you know, the commitment for many companies is to 2050. Clearly it's easier for a professional services firm like Reddington or a technology firm like Microsoft than it is for an airline or a mining company to achieve net zero.
0: Yeah, because I imagine the calculation should be like pretty <laughs> huge. So again, knowledge is power. But before you get like the final number, I think there's so much things into it that it's not actually easy to get like the knowledge and, and, and the number
1: firsthand. Yeah, no, as you say, look, I mean, this whole space is new and there are different metrics. But, you know, again, this is why you need sort of professional firms like B Zero Carbon, as well as, you know, increasingly the big four accounting firms to come in and audit and verify that what you're doing is right. That's absolutely key.
0: Yeah. And it kind of links to greenwashing. So, how do you really make sure that the company's promises are actually? real and as an investor what the fine line for you between exiting a stock or accompanying their efforts
1: well look I think on the latter point our goal wherever possible is to engage not divest divest should be the final straw where you feel that they've not listened to you they've not taken on board your actions and recommendations so at SJP we're part of what's called climate action 100 plus which is engaging with the 100 largest emitters on the planet they they between them represent 70 percent of global co2 and greenhouse gas emissions so actually if we tackle them you know we're going to make a massive impact mm-hmm. you know in last year we as part of that group engaged with shell to sign up to net zero and then last this time last year april last year we actually voted against them because we didn't think they'd gone far enough with their net zero commitments but by using the collective voice of numerous investors they responded and actually you know that's a very powerful way of of driving change so very much engagement not exiting on the you know on the greenwashing it's companies will kind of talk the talk they'll make commitments they say they're doing that but are they walking the walk so actually that shell example is a good one because in april 2021 when they made various kind of net zero commitments We voted against them and said, look, that's not good enough. You're not going far enough to do something about it. I think on the decarbonizing, let's say Microsoft or Reddington is going, well, where's the data? Where's the verification? And ideally from a third party, the evidence is what you do. I mean, the good thing about global financial markets is transparency is key, right? And, you know, there's ever increasing transparency in what we do. And we rely on institutions like the big four accounting firms to make sure that what companies disclose are true and fair. So I would say greenwashing is easier to spot if you're an investor, because obviously that's your job to kind of delve deeply, understand the risks, read an annual report on accounts, <laughs> read the TCFD report. I think where greenwashing is more of a problem is for either a consumer of those products or where, you know, maybe a company is promising to be greener than they are, or if you're in you know a retail investor and you're and you're investing in a fund manager or a financial services firm that promises to be very green but isn't because obviously you're not going to have the same information or tools to be able to verify whether that's the case. I think you know one of the other problems for me is that this space is complicated and nuanced because everyone wants it really simple. So the message is divest, you know, have it, Does your pension fund have oil and gas companies in it? Oil and gas companies are destroying the world. That's bad. And therefore, don't have any oil and gas. But actually, the argument is a lot more nuanced, is that we need, you know, 80% of our energy today comes from hydrocarbons, and we need to transition. And we don't have the energy resources today to transition to net zero. We can also talk about what's called a fair and just transition, which is, you know, the UK has benefited from coal for over 200 years while we turning around to India and making them you know, sign up to the same commitments as us when they haven't been able to benefit from it. So for me, the ESG engagement nuance of being a good investor with impact to transition is a lot more nuanced than maybe we read in the press and then therefore gets lost when it gets explained to a consumer, especially for a retail consumer who's looking to invest. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of organization, or in order for you to really try to convince people, what tools do you have? So clearly, you have voting rights as a shareholder, and it's pretty powerful. As you said, we've already voted against some companies. Are there others that you use?
1: Yeah. So the model that we use, SJP, is that we use third-party firm managers. So we can influence the fund managers we invest in. So a few years ago, we made it a prerequisite that all of our fund managers were signed up to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, which is kind of baseline kite mark when it comes to responsible investing. And they're raising that standard every year. We ourselves signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance. We work with engagement, stewardship and engagement providers such as Rubico. But I suppose there's a large institution we can access. We can join these... Groups like Climate Action 100 Plus, we can partner with people like Rubico, and we can use our size and scale to put pressure. You know, with 150 billion pounds, we have a lot of influence, so we can put that pressure on our fund managers, who in turn can put it on the companies they invest in. But it, you don't just have to be an equity holder. Actually, being a bond holder, you have, you know, potentially just as much impact on those businesses because, you know, you choose where those bonds price in terms of the yields. And you can choose not to lend to them in the future. And, you know, at the end of the day, if a business can't raise capital, either through equities or debt, that's problematic for its business. So increasingly, fixed income investors are seeing that they have almost just as much influence as the equity investors, even though they don't have the same voting rights. Mm
0: -hmm. And thanks for bringing the fixed income.
1: Yeah. And the other piece is obviously being part of an industry body. You know, in the UK, we're part of the Investment Association, it's about lobbying government. It's about you know, lobbying regulators. So change comes when you have multiple actors all acting in the same direction. So regulation, government policy, investors, consumers. When those things start to align, that's when you get real change, which is something that I think we saw happen last November at COP26 for the first time, which is the alignment of multiple stakeholders across multiple kind of jurisdictions.
0: Okay. And we've spoken a lot about the environment. What about diversity in the workplace, for example?
1: Diversity in the workplace has come a long way in in a short period of time. And it, it wasn't that long ago, let's say five years, just to keep it simple, where people were kind of talking about diversity because they thought it was a good thing, rather than because they realized that actually diversity is key for driving better business performance bottom line. And I think once you get those shifts where people see it as not something you must do because it's the right thing to do but actually at the same time it means that you're going to be more sustainable as a business then that's when change starts to come around and then again it as government policy or regulators add further metrics to drive that so look, the stats let's start with gender but then then there's race and ethnicity first we've got to remember that not every work and job is the same and industries are different and One of the things that we need to do is change the perception of various industries to people who wouldn't normally apply to those industries. That might be women, that might be people of different races and ethnicities who might go, well, that doesn't look like a job or an industry that I would have thought is right for me. Mm -hmm. I'm a massive believer in what gets measured gets done. So having kind of targets or quotas is a good thing because I think it's something to aim for. But I think what really matters is change. For change to happen, you need to change the process. You need to change the systems. And so take my world. In the finance industry, let's say there is probably for every 10 jobs, you know, eight men and two women. So trying to get sort of 50-50 diverse candidates for senior roles is is challenging, but you can start to change your process. So blind CVs, interviews with two people of which one's male, one's female, setting targets around your short list. So for me, change comes or long-term sustainable change comes because you've changed the process and the system, not because you've just sort of like rushed out to quickly hit those targets. Because you can hit those targets one year, but you can easily, easily slip back. Mm-hmm. And as I say, you need to you need to change the system and go, well, what why was it that we found ourselves in this place in the first place? Deconstruct the problem and then work backwards. And accept it might take longer to get there than maybe the timelines that you've signed up to. And I think, again, it's, it's a bit like the nuance of the ESG. Challenge yourself and go, well, what, what have we changed? Have we changed our maternity leave? Have we changed our paternity leave? Have we made it easier? Have have we got a hybrid working policy that means we can attract more people? Have we changed our hiring process? Have we changed the way we promote people? And benchmark that change over years. Because it's, it's those underlying processes that, Kind of meant that we didn't have as much diversity in the workplace in the past, and if you've thought about it properly, it should lead to the change you want to see in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: No, hundred percent, and as well like uh, bias because we all have bias without even sometimes realizing it. So hundred percent awareness.
1: Hence the blind CVs yeah. and the dual panel interview exactly to address biases. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if we take all of the environment, like all, all your initiatives, what has been your biggest achievement in that space? And, and do you think you really try to influence others? And, and do you see or do you feel institutions are following your lead because you're really trying to be like the
1: top on this subject? I don't think there's been one biggest achievement. And, and again, I think it's a bit like when you asked me at the beginning about success. I do think Achievements kind of compound on each other. And so it's a series of decisions that layer on top. So, you know, it started with saying, okay, by the end of this year, we'll have 100% of our fund managers signed up to UNPRI. And at the time, only two thirds of them were. And then by the end of the year, we achieved it. And when we set out to do that, people thought, oh, okay, you can't do that. And then the following year, we signed up to the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. We were the first wealth manager globally to do that. And then we set Our kind of 2025 target to reduce our carbon intensity by 25%. And we've achieved that three years early. And we've done that across equities, across fixed income and property. And again, property hasn't been because we've done anything rash. You know, we've worked with our fund manager, Orchard Street, who have tried to reduce their carbon footprint 10% every year. And then last November, we took our global equity portfolio fund, which was our largest fund, it was 14 billion pounds. And we restructured it so that it still tracks the MSCI ACWI, which is the world equity index, including emerging markets. But we set the goal to have a carbon intensity of fifty percent lower uh, than the MSCI World, but to do that without divestment. Last year, we appointed Rubico. We signed up to Climate Action 100 Plus. We've appointed Baringa to kind of help us with climate modeling. I suppose my point is, is that the change and the achievements are the sum of all of those parts rather than any one in individually. And so the impact comes from that. I do feel in the UK that what we've done is, you know, in, in the top quartile of what institutions are doing. And, and I think many people do look to what we're doing and and to follow our lead, which is probably another way to affect change. I mean, you know it's back to that walk the walk and talk the talk and when people see you actually do it
0: exactly they want to be involved
1: too yeah and and the key is there's no secrets here so we're very open and transparent about how we do it and yeah, you know, we'd love other people to follow as well
0: yeah yeah love that so let's talk about financial education now so you're absolutely passionate about financial inclusion And that comes from financial education, of course. And you want to teach, and you are teaching young people how their money works and how to make it work for them. So what are your techniques to really simplify concepts and make them want to play an active role?
1: The answer is in your question, which I think, to take Save Your Acorns, that book is written for four to six-year-olds, so children starting at primary school. And the reason I wrote that book was when I became... A dad, you know, I, I was reading a lot of children's books and I thought, okay, wow, this is powerful. And then at the same time, research had just come out from Cambridge University saying that our money-saving habits are formed by the age of seven. And so the point about Save Your Acorns is it's, I suppose it's, you know, a parable, a bit like Aesop's Fables. And it's supposed, it's it's teaching an important concept, but in a fun way. So at one level, it's just a story about some squirrels and some bears and some monkeys and the monkeys having fun Wasting Their Bananas and Grandpa Squirrel. But obviously behind it is a parable or a fable about and some lessons. And so it's not a book about money or saving and investing. But through storytelling, you can then start to talk to your children about why the monkeys wasted their bananas and what happened when the weather changed and why did the bears save their berries for winter. And then you can start to teach important financial concepts. So it's using a story to land concepts in an age-appropriate way and we did the same when we started Red Start when we first started Red Start we'd go into the classroom and teach kids about budgeting and tax but that's you know let's be clear it's a bit boring for kids and so what we did is we create a game and and so a lot of our teaching is based on what's called gamified learning so we know that play is a great way for people to learn and I think if children don't know they're learning but they're just sort of playing a game and then using coaching techniques. So as they play the game, you ask them questions to test their understanding. It's a much more powerful way of getting them to learn. So that kind of experiential learning, that play-based learning is in many walks of life shown to be a great way to teach children new concepts. And we're just applying that to teach them about money and how to make good decisions about money in an age-appropriate way. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's super interesting to know that by seven, you already have... I mean, you form your experiences as you said. Like I, yeah, it's an eye opener. I had no clue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's scary if you have kids. Yeah,
0: (laughs) and you're writing a new one, actually, a new book for 25 to 45 years old. So definitely, spot on for my listeners. Can you tell us a bit more?
1: So, having written a children's book uh, and having done lots of podcasts and talks over the last 10 years, I, I really wanted to write a book for young people who are earning money either through work or they're self-employed and to empower them to make good decisions about money so really the book is about financial freedom how to earn it how to keep it and how to grow it and so sort of some simple money steps to help you to do it and the underlying behavioral framework of the book is one is about awareness the second is about action and then once you've taken action is acceleration and i use stories from my life. I use real examples of friends. I use stories of famous people from Michael Jordan to Johnny Depp to Pharaoh and Joseph to bring to life the components. And the book is split into three parts. Earn it. So, you know, the idea of going out and earning money, keep it. How do you keep hold of it? And how can you lose money and then grow it? And really, I see the kind of key to financial resilience and financial Mm -hmm well-being as being able to master earn it keep it grow it and so for me success is my promise for the people reading that book is kind of if you read a chapter a night for two weeks you know I I hope to inspire you to kind of take action and and change the way you feel about money and hopefully pass the book on to another friend
0: Mm -hmm. and has it been out already or you still working on it
1: so it's I started writing it in June or July 2020 and it's gone to the publishers so it should be out in June this year, I'm designing book covers, and it's with the editors. And there's a whole process to get it processed, but it's it's written. Cool,
0: I imagine. So yeah, let us know when when it's out. Definitely, I'm interested. One last question for the end: What are these things for you in order to reach a sense of financial well-being?
1: Yeah, so you know, at its simplest level, I think you know Morgan Housel says it's it's the freedom. To have enough money to choose how to spend your time, you know. Quite often, people don't get to choose how to spend their time because because they have to work. But I suppose let me use the definition in my book. I, I have two concepts: financial resilience and financial well-being. For me, financial resilience is the ability to withstand bumps in the road, and so that's much more about having enough spare cash, such that if you lose your job, let's say due to COVID, or your car breaks down, that you don't end up in debt. And financial resilience is so important because, you know, of course there are people who who struggle just because they, they just don't even earn enough income, but there's a whole lot of people who actually do earn enough income, but because of maybe bad luck, ill-advised decisions can find themselves indebted and in financial difficulty. And the problem is once you're in debt, it spirals against you certainly in the UK, but I'm sure it must be true around the world. But 50% of all mental health issues are associated with indebtedness and money worries. And typically, money worries and indebtedness is one of the major causes of divorce or relationships splitting up. And so for me, financial resilience, or building financial resilience is a bit like mental resilience, which is a bit like resilience full top is just going to be a lot better for everyone. So how can we help people avoid falling into traps. And if they do fall into, let's say, debt, how can they get out of them quickly and effectively? So that's financial resilience.
0: Mm -hmm. And I guess when you say debt is really like the credit card and like the really expensive debt, not necessarily like the mortgage and yeah.
1: Exactly. And that's one of the things I like to talk about is is your debt backing an asset or is your debt backing Something that you bought and is depreciating in value. And, you know, a mortgage is typically very low interest, certainly relative to credit cards, whereas quite often credit cards are, you know, 29% APR. I mean, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is buy now, pay later. And I use an example of an iPad that you can buy. And you can, if you pay it back in the first year, then it's free from an interest. But Pay it back over one or two years, then the interest is just eye-wateringly high, and and just how crippling that can be. So, yeah, absolutely. Your debt is not bad. So, you need to understand the difference between mortgage on an asset and credit card debt, higher purchase debt, etc. But then, for me, financial well-being is closer to the Morgan household one, which is let's say retirement. At some point, you want to stop working. And enjoy life, and we now live in a world where financial responsibility sits with us as individuals. So, how do you ensure you have enough money that you don't have to keep working in your seventies because you can't afford to? And so, how do you build up that financial well-being? And and actually, let's say, you know, you're earning more money, or you want to retire sooner. You know, what are the levers that you can pull to achieve that financial well-being where you have enough assets to kind of work for you, so that then you're free to say. Know, I choose to work because I want to work, or I choose to live here, or I choose to do that because I can now afford to. I I have that financial well being.
0: So it's all about having the options open and find the one that, yeah, suits you and what you want to achieve in life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rob, for this chat. I really enjoyed it, and I find it fascinating to learn about initiatives that are happening and how influential people like you use their energy to get us to a better place for sure when we have that kind of discussions with on what we can achieve with your own money it inspires and motivates us to use our money and our power in a way that could improve the planet and the people so thanks so much for reflecting on our adventures and best of luck and keep us posted on the book lounge
1: well thank you for having me on your podcast and yeah i'll let you know when the book's live (laughs)
0: sounds good thank you take care so at the end of this episode I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am you can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at maricafino.com. and if you like this podcast please subscribe and spread the word thank you